0: Hey everyone, let's turn to Job chapter 38, Job 38, two weeks from tonight, Ash Wednesday, we're going to begin a series studying Christ and his gospel through the letters, through the teaching, through the ministry of Paul the Apostle, I'm excited about that, but That series is only going to begin after we've spent three weeks lingering in some of the darkest corners of the Bible. So, tonight we're continuing our series, God and Natural Disasters. And I want to keep keep us thinking about this challenge. If the gospel cannot make sense... In the ears of mothers digging for their children in rubble. If the gospel cannot make sense. In the ears of little children who can't find their moms. Then it ought not be proclaimed from safe suburban sanctuaries. Tonight. If if our gospel cannot speak in the darkest parts of the dark. Then. It's not worth our allegiance. And my conviction is that our gospel is strong enough for Porter Prince tonight. I, I, I do believe that. But we cannot talk about the gospel in such a way that denies the raw pain of suffering. We cannot talk about Jesus crucified in a way that trivializes suffering. We do not worship with a smiling, happy face. When we worship with Haitians, we worship and lament like Job's, we saw last week, our worship, our worship's not with a forced smile. It is robe ripped, head shaven, slammed it to the ground, worshiping in the dark, lament worship. We've been asking last week. We were asking last week, how do we respond to God in times of disaster, and how do we respond to the victims of disaster? Tonight, we're going to add another question. How might God respond to us in times of disaster? Pray with me. Lord, I want to ask for your help. I ask that you would help us because. Because tonight we're going to take a look at you. And we can't handle it. We don't want to be those who've just heard by the hearing of the ear. We want our eyes to also see you. And so tonight, Lord, we present ourselves before your word and before The preaching of your word and we ask that the reading of it and that the proclaiming of it would open our ears. And also our eyes. Amen. Last week we got some inside information, didn't we? Into the book of Job. We saw in chapter one. What's going on in this book behind the scenes? We got to look behind the the cosmic curtains. And we saw God presenting Job to Satan as the most righteous man on the earth. And we see how Satan reacted. He responded with a challenge to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Look, God, he loves you. He worships you. He fears you because you've given him the dream life. So at stake in this whole story. At stake in the story is whether or not God will be acknowledged as worthy of worship simply for who he is. And not just because of the circumstances he may arrange for us. Satan is granted permission to assault Job, as we've seen. And because of that, Job became a victim of disaster. These marauding militias, they came in, they killed servants, they stole livestock. Then we, we read also that fire fell from the sky... It consumed more servants, more of his livestock, and then, worst of all, for Job at least, chapter 1, verse 19 a great wind came across the wilderness from the wild places, and it toppled a building onto his ten kids. There were no cries that, that came out of the rubble, there were no rescues. For CNN. After Satan then assaults Job's flesh. Where his skin is blighted with this, this foul, awful skin problem. Where he's scraping his, his skin with pot shards. After this, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, the friends of Job. They make their way to the land of Uz. To bring him some comfort, right? And along with Job's wife. These friends serve. As examples for how we do not respond to people Who have been affected by disaster. We never urge anyone to curse God and die. As did Job's wife. And we must never offer shallow theology. As did Job's friends. The bulk of this this book. Is made up of speeches. And Job makes his initial lament speech. In chapter 3. And then for almost 40 more chapters. You have these speeches. Alternating between Job and his friends. At some point near the end. Elihu, this angry young man, makes his speech. And there's no shortage of angry young men with theological speeches to make, are there? I have been among them. So we have all these speeches. When these friends see Job squirming in dust and ash, screeching at his laments, cursing the day of his birth, this disorients them. They can't handle the scene. It doesn't compute for them. It offends their sensibilities. And this is because, as we've seen, they have a weak theology, a shallow view of God. They also have a weak cosmology, okay, It's a view of the cosmos of the world, how it operates. They have a weak theology and a narrow cosmology. Job's friends, they don't acknowledge a God who would permit disaster. And they don't acknowledge a world in which disaster strikes. Unless the disaster is intended for judgment of sin, right? This is what we looked at last week. They they don't have a theology big enough for great gusts of winds from the wild places or for earthquakes Unless those catastrophes can be plugged into their simplistic formula. Disaster equals judgment. This is not how we respond to disasters. Job will exclaim in chapter 13. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent. And as God himself exclaims at the book's end. You have not spoken of me. What is right? Here's a lesson from this. Truth with falsehood can be more dangerous than an outright lie. When you read Job's speeches, there's a lot of stuff that sounds good. Paul even will quote from these speeches at times in Romans. There's a lot of good stuff in the speeches. And you hear Christians speak this good stuff often in the face of disaster when they're trying to console people But along with all the good stuff is a lot of falsehood. If you're going to poison me, you would be foolish to give me cyanide because I know better than that. But if you put a couple of drops in my water, then I'm a goner. I was about to take a sip then and I decided not to. (laughs) (laughs) Truth with falsehood can be more dangerous than an outright lie because we drink it. And guys... A lot of what you're reading, a lot of what you're studying, a lot of what you're hearing taught, a lot of what maybe you yourself, you're teaching to others. It might be more dangerous than outright lies. Sometimes. Heresy is less dangerous than good theology mixed with a few kernels. Of twisted falsehoods. So how has Job been responding to God? How has Job been responding to God as a disaster victim in his speeches? Most of Job's speeches are they seem, they're directed to the friends, but they're also directed to God. And we talked about the language of lament last week. How they make up a third. Lament Psalms make up a third of the Psalter. And in these lament Psalms, we have pleas for God to hurry up and rescue. Cries for justice. Cries for, for help, for healing. And there are questions. Lots of questions. Hard questions put to God. So, what do you think? Is it okay for us to question God? Is that okay? Is it okay to demand that God wake up from his sleep, as we see in Psalm 44? Is it okay to claim that his arrows have sunk into us? We look up when we're injured and we realize God's the one with a bow in his hand. Is it okay to say that kind of thing? Job's doing this in his speeches. He actually claims in chapter six, just like in Psalm 38, that the arrows of God are lodged in his gut. And he's questioning God all throughout his speeches. So can, can you and I, can we question God? I think there's a difference between questioning God and asking God questions. Laments that give us language in despair. And even though almost every lament psalm nudges us in the direction of of hopeful praise, there are these questions asked of God. How long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? It's affirmed by these lament psalms that we can ask God hard questions. But questioning God implies an interrogation. And this is what Job is doing. In many of his speeches, courtroom language is being used. Job is serving God a subpoena. He's arraigning him to heavenly court. He wants to put God in the stand and demand some answers to the questions. Now, I am uncomfortable in promoting the approach of asking God questions. I'm sorry, Questioning God. I'm uncomfortable with that. I think, yes, I can encourage you. Ask God the hard questions. I'm uncomfortable saying you can question God. But I'm not going to tell Job what to do with his questions. I don't want to be named among those friends of whom God says, you have not spoken of me what is right. I can't advise you to question God. But I'm not going to tell people in Haiti right now what to do with their questions. The laments in the Bible indicate that at rare moments, the darkness might get just so unbearably dark that all we can do is groan hopelessness like in Psalm 88 It's the darkest of the Psalms. Maybe all we can do is just choke out some anguished questions. But even so, even if you do find yourself in such weeping and gnashing of teeth. Know this, that if you pelt the heavens with questions. The response may not be answers. But more questions. Again, if you pelt the heavens with questions demanding clear answers, God may pelt you with questions to which you will have no answers whatsoever. This is what happened to Job. Page after page of phony theology by Job's friends. Page after page of Job's own Complaints and his petitions. Finally, after all this, God Himself speaks. And when God speaks, it ends all speech, doesn't it? Job chapter 30, 38, beginning in verse 1. We're going to be reading a lot tonight. When it comes time to edit your sermon manuscript, it's hard to edit the Bible. Job 38, beginning in verse one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. After all Job's questions, finally God responds, but with questions of his own. Get ready, oh small little man. Because now. I'm going to question you. You answer my questions now. Beginning again. Chapter 38 verse 4. Listen to all the questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely, you know, or who stretched the line upon it on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy or who shut in the sea with doors. When it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said. Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the past to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Let's keep on. Verse thirty one. Can you bind the chains, the Pleiades, these are constellations, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule in the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Does it disturb you that? When God finally answers the cries of the most righteous man on the face of the earth, one who deserves no disaster, has suffered disaster beyond words. Does it disturb you that when God finally answers this noble man, that it is not with answers, but with questions? No explanations for the suffering. You see, Job, I had this wager with Satan and and it was actually him that sent the fire and the wind, not me. And actually, I'm about to restore all of your fortunes twofold. So just hold on for a little while. No explanations. No apologies. No apologetics. No showing Job the footprints in the sand behind him. God answers with unanswerable questions. Does this not disturb us? Disorient us a bit? Just as disturbing. N- not just what God says in response to disaster, but the location from which He responds. Did you notice the location? He speaks from out of. A natural disaster. 38 one. Then the Lord answered Job from out of the whirlwind. The speech of God is delivered from the roar and the fury of a tornado. And here's what, what really gets me. It was wind that killed Job's children. And here in this whirling, violent storm wind, God responds to the suffering victim. What would Eliphaz with his God will never give you more than you can handle theology? What would Eliphaz say to that? And what am I going to say about that? What do you have to say about that? God speaking out of a natural disaster. Does it not unravel us a bit? Dislocate us, disturb us, dislodge us. If you're not disturbed yet. Just wait. So far in God's speech here that we've read. The physical elements of creation they are being highlighted and celebrated. God's power, his incomprehensible wisdom. It's astronomically glorious, meteorologically Glorious, geologically glorious. His wisdom and power is such that he commands the lightning bolts. They say, here we are. Where do you want us to go? And let's talk about the sea. What God says about the sea would have been really impressive to an ancient audience. Because the sea was considered this wild chaos realm. God, though. Says he was there for its birth, he even foments it. He stirs it up, delights in it. He actually gave it the darkness that so terrifies mortals. He enjoys the thrashing and the roaring of its waves. But he has set limits. Verses 10 and 11. He has prescribed limits for the sea. Set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come. No farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. God's speech so far is about the wildness. Of this physical creation now. He controls it. But it's still wild. Before Job. And this theme of wildness keeps on going. As God speaks of the animals. That roam this physical creation in 38, 39. And all the way throughout the end. Of chapter 39. We hear about these animals. The lion that tears flesh. The birds of prey that even feast on the blood of those slain in war. This, the wild ox that you can't keep in a barn. The wild donkey that enjoys the bad lands. And the salt waste that humans do not tread on. The strange ostrich that laughs in the faces of humans. These are undomesticated Beast animals whose ways intimidate humankind's civilized sensibilities. The only domesticated beast that's mentioned here in this part of the speech is the horse. But it's it's a war horse. A horse that paws the ground and snorts when it hears battle sounds just lusting to charge into the bloody fray. These images of the animal. Are wild. Today when we. When we think of the wilderness. We tend to view the wilderness. With a certain fondness. Hiking on well marked nature trails. With their hundred dollar Gore-Tex boots. Right? Pausing to photograph butterflies and sunsets. (laughs) But. When you have been. In a wild Wilderness, you feel it, don't you? You feel the alien wonder of it all. The fierce power swelling up from the ground, thundering in the rivers, from the whispering of unseen things between the trunks of the trees in the dark. All of it saying to you, You are very small. And that's what Job says in response to God in chapter 40, verse 3 Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? The wilderness of the ancient world was far less tame. That what we know of when we think of wilderness today was viewed as the haunting grounds of these strange creatures and demonic spirits. Yet God is associating himself with all that ominous wildness in his speech to Job. This is a God who is beyond domestication, right? This is a God who's not going to behave our Theological expectations, a God who will not fit comfortably within our theological categories. But just to make sure Job truly gets it, the job has made the most of the opportunity here to have his own theology exploded and expanded. God's going to give give another speech about wild animals. But this this wild animal, these beasts are of a different sort all together. Chapter 40, beginning in verse 15. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his, strength in his, behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword as if no one else could bring near a sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies and in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident that the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Introducing... Behemoth, a great land beast. And the images used convey the solid, still strength, but one beyond capture. He seems peaceful, but you can't mess with him. The river might roar and rage. He'll just swallow it in his mouth. The next beast, it's even more fierce and his domain Is the bed of chaos itself. The wild and the roaring sea. I'm going to read all of chapter 41. It's very scary. Can you? Listen to the questions. Can you? Will you? Can you? Who can? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you in soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? And take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons? Or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? God says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, even this dragon is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs. God can't help but speak of this creature. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth? His terror, his back is made up of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings. "...flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and a burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable... His heart is hard as a stone. Hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. But the sword reaches him, it does not avail. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. All man-made things will fail. He counts... Iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp, sharp potsherds, like the one you scraped yourself with, Job. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake, from all the stirring of the sea. One would think the deep to be white haired on earth. There is not his like a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Behemoth and Leviathan. Do many of you have footnotes in your Bible that. Uh indicate this is a hippopotamus this is a crocodile anyone guess if you nods uh, I used to think when I read this and I was a lot younger I used to think that this was evidence that dinosaurs lived the same time that humans lived and then I saw the footnotes about the hippo the crocodile and I felt a little silly but uh but after a month or so of studying Job I think I was closer to the truth. with dinosaurs. Think about the descriptions. That, that we've read. You can't stick these animals. In a zoo. You don't. Pay to go on a safari, for a safari tour. To see these animals. You don't pay to go on a scenic river tour. To see this kind of beast. You can't cage These things, they're not just beasts. These are monsters. In the ancient world, there are a number of, uh, here's another fancy word, cosmogenies, right? Cosmogeny is a, a story about the origin of the cosmos. There are all these cosmogenies going around. We have access to a number of them and you see something very common among them. This idea of chaos is the evil entity that the creating God must defeat. Think of Genesis one, the very opening in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters without form, void, darkness. This watery, murky mess connects with the idea of chaos and in some of these ancient cosmogonies, there were these chaos beasts, great primordial monsters who were agents of chaos. The creating God was supposed to defeat these agents of chaos, these beasts. Here, God is using poetic, mythic language to tell Job. He did not actually defeat the chaos monsters. He's decided to keep them as his What does it do to your theology? To know that the God we worship keeps monsters as his playthings. My children. They do not handle storms very well. And if you've been in our house, you know our house doesn't have any uh, insulation in the ceiling. You can hear everything in a storm. It seems like you're directly outside. Soft rains are okay, but when thunder vibrates our house at night, the cries start coming out of the bedrooms. Little feet hit the floor, run into the hallway, crying for help. And I'm the dad, right? I'm the biggest one in the house. And while... Some sonic explosion is taking place over my head, over which I have no control. I say, everything is going to be okay. I hope. I've also told them, when they're scared, that there's no such thing as monsters. I'm going to tell you this: every time I've said this to my kids that I can recall, in the back of my mind. I've wondered about those monstrous, wild things that I cannot control. After studying Job this past month or so. I believe in monsters. And wild, fierce things. That I can't do anything with. But some of them are beautiful terrifying but beautiful god is putting the ferocity and the epic power of behemoth and leviathan he's putting all that on display to job to show his own splendor and untamable glory this god who who lovingly makes covenants with israel he also speaks from the belly of a roaring tornado He's not just majestic and untamable, though. He's exhilaratingly beautiful. That's why we like to chase lightning storms, right? That's why people make vans that can run into tornadoes somehow or another. Because there's something attractive about it in the most horrifying sense. Beautiful the way lightning is beautiful when it streaks across the sky after your heart just skipped a beat from the thunder. So how well does this kind of beauty fit into your theological vision of this God? How how well do we uh, fit a God like this, a God of thunder and waves and wild lions and monsters? How does this kind of God fit into our theological orientation? I mean, can you fathom the power of this God, but also the beauty of this God? Because he might shot out in power from a tornado, from the disaster of a tornado. But he has also shot it out from the disaster of the cross, hasn't he? Think of the glory and the beauty, the terror and the tenderness of this kind of God. I've got to tell you that I've been so disturbed all day long over this sermon. I think this is one of the worst and best passages of the Bible. I don't know what to do when I read this, when I study this. Job helps, he helps show us what to do. Chapter 42, his response. Verses five through six. It's not a very... Dignified response It's not one of those responses that you hope for one that you you got everything together. Forty two, five through six. I have heard of you. By the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent or I am comforted. It could be either way. In dust and ashes. The response to God. No matter if we're miserable. Or if we're exhilarating and thrilled. It's always the same. It's worshipful, reverent humility. Whether your life is going just fine. And God feels like your buddy. Or if the ground is just shaken beneath your feet. I want to close with just. A few lessons trying to pick up the shards of my own self after working through something like this for some time. Uh, Three lessons from this. if We could try to gather ourselves a bit and. uh, Find some sense of application. First thing I want to say is that there's no consolation. Like a revelation of God's glory. Think about that. There's no consolation. Like a revelation of God's glory. There are a lot of ways we try to console people as Christians. God had a purpose in this. God's going to use this for good. God will never give you more than you can handle. There's a lot of truth behind these words. But here. What we see. Offered for consolation to the disaster victim is a bright and dark, unfathomable, indescribable explosion of theology. What we need more than anything else in our darkest moments is a vision of who God is in his glory. Here's a second lesson. Explanations. And apologetics are always inadequate in times of disaster. Explanations and apologetics are always inadequate in times of disaster. Apologetics, how do we how we defend our faith? The odyssey explanations of suffering. Apologetics are always, always going to leave the disaster victims empty. And so many of them are kind to us when we give them apologetics. And they just kind of say, oh, OK, OK, whatever. And let us feel comforted while we continue like Job's friends in our simple, with our simple answers. God did not answer the questions with the explanations, did he? Instead, he just spoke of himself as more glorious than the disasters were terrible. What well, we've got to embrace a worldview of. A cosmology. Okay. That permits monstrous powers. To roar and bark. And bray in our ears. They are out there. God is sovereign over all these characters. And forces. These beasts. These wild untamable things. God is sovereign over them. But there is a complexity. To the exercise of that sovereignty. That's going to ever mystify. And perplex us. So. So. We need to be careful when we try to offer our explanations. Calvinists, be careful with the simple disaster equals judgment answer. Arminians, be careful with the disaster equals divine absence or divine impotency answer. Cheap, trite theology is going to get nowhere when the ground heaves and quakes. There's no consolation like a revelation of God's glory. Tidy explanations are always inadequate in times of disaster. And last one. The wildness of our world. Which threatens our sense of control. Can actually become a source of worship. Instead of anxiety. It's a long sentence there. The wildness of our world which threatens our sense of control. Can actually become a sense of worship. Worship. Rather than anxiety. One of the most striking moments for me when I realized it wasn't in control happened in India. I shared about in India a little bit last week. Uh, my wife and I had been traveling for uh, five weeks or so together. I mean, she wasn't more than 20 feet away from me, and it was glorious backpacking, and we we camped out in the wild on the cliffs of the Atlantic coast in Ireland, saw the sun setting, had all these amazing moments together. We fly to India, we land, we get on a train, the train ends up, On the other side, the wrongs, that doesn't even stop in the right train station. Skips the train station where our friends are waiting to pick us up. Goes on the other side of a city of six million people. We get out at midnight in the dark. India doesn't have good lighting, okay? There's not like street lamps everywhere. There's fire in barrels some some places. But it's just dark, dark. But people are everywhere. And they all want to touch the Americans coming off the trains. It's a dark and wild feeling when you get out of that Train at midnight in the wrong place with no one to pick you up. we were with a friend. This friend, she's too. She, she lives in India as a missionary. She's she's too cheap for a taxi. Okay, which would have been the safe bet where we all could have fit. She puts us on these auto rickshaws. These little, uh, uh, well, they're like a motorcycle with a little carriage rigged to the back one, basically. So, so we divide up into two groups. She puts me with one of the uh, girl who works with her and small children that she. Has adopted basically in her family. She, she and Miranda went in another auto rickshaw. The, the last word she says to the driver. My rickshaw is stay with us. And don't get ahead of us. Okay. Boom. He hits the pedal. And we fly off. Into the wild. untamable darkness. Of Bangalore india and i thought about grabbing him in a headlock and saying you heard what she said my wife's back there I hadn't been more than 20 feet away from her and i'm trying to calculate every turn we make trying to calculate the yard is trying to fi- we're weaving and winding all over the place there's no highways nothing like that i don't know where we are i lose track after about 45 seconds winding and weaving and after all that trying to remember, trying to calculate it all, trying to control the situation, wondering if I should take the guy by the head, it occurs to me, I'm not in control. And then it occurred to me, theologically, I'm not in control. And it's okay. Because God is in control of this wildness. Another moment, the last time I went on a serious backpacking trip was uh, I was in Virginia. I was up on a mountain. And there's always that eerie feeling that comes when the sun starts to tuck behind the trees. Do you know that feeling? I get a little more easily freaked out than my wife. I'm ashamed to admit. But uh, there's that moment when, you know, the crickets start. And you hear maybe sounds that you didn't notice before. And there have been those times when... I think of Jesus out with the wild beasts in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1. And I try to find comfort in the fact that though there's wildness out here, God's there. But I remember distinctly being in Virginia by the stone as darkness fell. And I realized afresh again, I'm just not in control here. But the truth is, I'm never in control. When I walk to the coffee shop that I love so much, And I order the drink that I know I'm going to get, and I know the guys behind the counter. When I show up at the UCF house early in the morning and I turn the heater on because it's so daggum cold in my office and I start studying, I feel like I'm in control. We're never in control. And the powers and the monsters of chaos have been re released into this world through sin. But our God holds them somehow, sets limits somehow. You're never going to explain how it works but you can worship the Lord who's working it all out. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to ask your forgiveness. For now, even, even in the delivering of a message about your glory, I'm just, I'm just not postured rightly before you, Lord. I'm just not bowed and bent over. And my spirit as I should be. And that's just a testimony to the fact that. Uh, what I hear and what I've seen. They've just come so clear, so dimly. God, I want to dare to pray. For myself and for all of us in the room that we would. Be exposed to you. In a stronger. Stronger. In clearer way, in such a way that we're both so astounded that we can't really speak, but also comforted by finding ourselves humbled and dust and ashes. It's really the only place for me, isn't it, Lord? Help us now, Lord, to uh, to have our theology, our vision of you exploded and expanded throughout these days as we seek you in the texts. Help us to worship as one we fear. But also love. In the name of Jesus. The one who is the highest and the best forever and ever. Amen.